Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Hostility toward people who are different from us has always been a human flaw. But in the 1930s, Adolf Hitler took that hate to a tragically historic level. And for those who wanted their animosity validated, Hitler became an icon, an idol. Over a hundred anti-Semitic organizations sprung up all over the world. Jewish people fleeing for their lives sought safety in the United States, but American radical groups like the Friends of Germany Silver Shirts, Defenders of the Christian Faith, the Christian Front, and the Knights of the White Camellia rallied behind Hitler. Protected by the First Amendment, these Nazi groups participated in parades and rallies calling for the eradication of the Jewish people. They wore Nazi uniforms and flew Nazi flags to flaunt their prejudice. They viciously bullied and attacked Jewish people and vandalized their businesses and homes. Now, we are free to voice our opinions and beliefs. It's a fundamental right in America. But we're not free of the consequences. And we're not free to move from voice to violence. And these groups, they thought they were free of both consequences and the law. They believed that the more brutal they were, the more people would become compliant. So when they chose to stake a claim in New York City, they were a bit surprised by the pushback. You see, in the 1930s, New York was a haven for gangsters, and not all of them were Italian. Mayor Lansky and other Jewish mobsters ran prostitution and gambling rings and loan shark operations, and they had plenty of hired hitmen. They weren't exactly good men. However, they weren't about to let Hitler's version of evil invade America. The Nazis might have had some 20,000 supporters in New York, but that didn't frighten Lansky and his allies. While no one could legally stop the radicalized groups from marching, they could make their own voices heard. Of course, that would probably lead to a fight, which was perfectly fine with the mob. Mayor Lansky had friends in high places, like the notorious mafia gangster Lucky Luciano. His connections prompted a judge, Nathan Perlman, to ask Lansky to help teach the Jewish community how to defend themselves. In return, he would grant legal protection and supply the funding under one condition. No killing. Lansky agreed to help, though he declined funding or protection. Acutely aware of the Nazi death camps in Germany and seeing how the marches in America were increasingly destructive, he simply refused to make a promise he couldn't keep. Lansky's men and their allies taught Jewish and sympathetic communities how to fight. And before long, street gangs and mobsters began to show up at rallies and shout the Nazis down. 
The hate groups resorted to their usual violence, but the street gangs outmatched them, putting many of the Nazis in the hospital with broken bones and teeth. Yet Lansky and the other mobsters never killed anyone. And while the radical groups enjoyed dishing out violence, they didn't like being on the receiving end and demanded protection. The mayor agreed, on the condition that they not wear Nazi uniforms, carry Nazi flags or brandish swastikas, and that they refrained from vandalism and any violence. Unwilling to meet those demands, the groups eventually stopped their rallies. Lansky and the others may have been gangsters, but when it came to their approach to Nazis, many saw them as heroes. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. It started on Christmas Eve of 1865. Upset over losing the Civil War and angry that enslaved people had been freed, a group of Confederate veterans gathered in Pulaski, Tennessee to form a secret society, one they dubbed the Invisible Empire of the South. Their first order of business was selecting their leader, a former Confederate general, Nathan Bedford Forrest. The title of leader didn't come off as imposing enough for their tastes, so they called him a Grand Wizard instead. Forrest ruled over a chain of command made of Grand Dragons, Grand Titans, and Grand Cyclops. No, it wasn't a 19th century tabletop role-playing game. The men, most of whom were extremist members of their political party, had created a white terrorist hate group, the Ku Klux Klan. Unwilling to accept President Andrew Johnson's Reconstruction-era policies providing equal protection under the Constitution for formerly enslaved people, the men dedicated themselves to civil unrest and violence. Their main targets were black schools, businesses, and political leaders. They also targeted white sympathizers and politicians. In 1869, with arson, lynchings, murders, and other hate crimes out of control, Forrest tried to disband the KKK, but to no avail. And by 1870, the Klan had branches in practically every southern state. Members ranged from poor to wealthy, and they rooted themselves into every aspect of law enforcement and the courts, making it hard to bring them to justice. In 1871, President Grant used military force to wipe most of the group out. The fires of hate rekindled in 1915, when die-hard Confederates rallied a new generation to their lost-cause philosophy. Advocates of the ideology romanticized the Confederates' efforts, claiming that slavery had brought economic prosperity not possible with paid labor. Further, they painted themselves as the chivalrous antebellum South, whose state rights had been ignored by the aggressive North. The narrative the Confederate veterans spun was one of a noble and just cause, that the South's generals were good men with ethics and high morals. The South, they said, was a gentle, more traditional way of life with strong Christian values. They claimed that the Union, with their larger population and more militant lifestyle, wanted to exploit the South's power and wealth, that the South had a right to succeed, and that greedy Northern industrial businessmen and politicians had set out to steal the power for themselves by force. The film The Birth of a Nation, a silent movie based on the novel The Klansman, also hit theaters in 1915. 
To this day, the film is still considered one of the most controversial and racist movies Hollywood has ever made. It sparked an intense upturn in the Lost Cause movement, mostly by Confederate soldiers who were dying and wanted to preserve their memories. The film portrayed the Ku Klux Klan as defenders of women from black sexual predators and as heroic protectors of American values. It sparked fresh racism and inspired former preacher William Simmons to resurrect the Klan. Simmons gathered friends and a handful of elderly original Klan members. Together, they set fire to a cross on top of Stone Mountain in Georgia on Thanksgiving Day. The message was clear. The KKK had returned. Simmons, who had been honorably discharged from the Spanish-American War, dropped out of medical school, and been suspended from the church for inefficiency, finally found the attention he sought. He declared himself the imperial wizard of the invisible empire of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. This time, the Klan expanded their hate toward other groups, including Native Americans, Italians, Jews, the Irish, Catholics, labor unions, certain political parties. Basically, Simmons and the others wanted only American-born, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant white men to call the shots. They used fear to gain public support, preying on people's insecurities during the uncertain times surrounding the First World War. They insisted people of specific religions and races were the root cause of all their problems, all crime, all poverty, immorality, disease, and anything else that troubled America. And he and his knights were going to save America by putting those people in their subservient place. The Klan also used labor strikes to stir the pot. Simmons claimed strikers were in league with foreign powers and communists. By the 1920s, the Klan had over four million members across the nation, even in northern states. In Indiana, the KKK boasted 250,000 members, quickly becoming one of the largest chapters in the country. Heading up the Indiana branch of the Klan was David Curtis Stevenson, one of the most powerful men in the state. Reportedly charismatic, Stevenson wasn't short on compliments for himself. He told everyone who would listen that he had the biggest brains and would be the biggest man in the United States. He'd moved to Evansville in 1920 and had worked for a retail coat company. Though he told people he was wealthy and had come from wealth, in reality, he'd been born in Houston, Texas, to a family of sharecroppers. Stevenson had little schooling, having left to work as a printer's apprentice before joining the army. He never saw combat in World War I, but his training provided him with the means to effectively organize and lead the Klan in Indiana and six other states. He helped create the white supremacist newspaper, The Fiery Cross. He also became the top recruiter for the Klan, bringing in nearly 5,500 new members and offering Protestant ministers free membership. And the wealth he bragged of came quickly from the sales of uniforms and other items that Klan members purchased. Though his vanity and mistruths continued, Klan members worshipped him. At a gathering for the 4th of July in 1923, he addressed 100,000 members. He arrived late and gave an excuse that thrilled them. 
He'd been counseling the President of the United States, he told them, and Harding had kept him unduly long. It was another lie, of course, but the crowd believed him. Warren G. Harding had denounced lynching and had made some efforts to combat the Klan. The Klan had become so angry with the President that they spread rumors that he was secretly a Klansman himself. It wouldn't be the first or the last time Stevenson used the rumor to spread misinformation. He'd helped two prominent local politicians rise to power, after all. He'd used the Klan to intimidate voters, putting Edward L. Jackson in the governor's mansion. Proud of his efforts, Stevenson told the crowd, I am the law in Indiana. The Klan didn't like Catholics, much less Irish immigrants. And the nearby Notre Dame had become a thorn in Stevenson's side. Something had to be done, and he organized a rally in South Bend. Stevenson's Klansmen had harassed the University of Dayton in Ohio the previous year. They'd burned crosses in cemeteries and on school grounds. After repeated acts of terrorism, the football team successfully chased off the Klansmen. The Klan retaliated setting off bombs and setting an eight-foot cross ablaze on school property. As the students doused the flames, 50 cars of Klansmen arrived. The men surrounded the students and attacked them. Town residents joined the fray, eventually beating back the Klan. If they couldn't intimidate that school, the Klan would pick another to harass, and Notre Dame was right on Stevenson's doorstep. The students had heard about the attack on the Ohio University, so they weren't too surprised when Klansmen arrived on school property to lecture about the dangers that the Irish and other immigrants posed, as well as the problem with Catholicism. One Klansman posted up in an auditorium, handing out leaflets and telling students and staff that Catholics were horrible Americans. The Irish students responded by throwing potatoes at him that they'd stolen from the cafeteria, and the man fled. Stevenson retaliated, and he was playing a long game, he used scare tactics to force citizens into voting Klan candidates into government office. If he couldn't force the school to shut down one way, he'd do it another. University President Father Matthew Walsh began to fear for his students' safety. He and two other priests went to talk to the chief of police, Lawrence Lane, to file a complaint. Chief Lane didn't want the Klan there either, and assured Walsh that the group had been denied permits for rallies and parades. Relieved, Walsh and the others left. What they didn't know was that the Klan didn't care about the law in South Bend, nor did they care about the students. On March 17th of 1924, a large number of Klansmen arrived in South Bend by car and train. At first glance, they could have been anyone, until you noticed the white robes and hoods they carried. As the day wore on, more arrived. Members who had shown up earlier donned their robes and began directing traffic for even more incoming Klansmen. Father Walsh knew a storm was brewing. When the word hit Notre Dame that the Klan had arrived, students began to trickle off campus. Though Father Walsh issued a warning for them to stay on school grounds, the students weren't going to sit idly by and let a bunch of men dressed in sheets run them off. They loosely formed groups and hoofed it the two miles to downtown South Bend. Once there, they found a scuffle already in progress. 
The Klan was attacking and beating local Catholic citizens who had come to voice their opinions against the Klan. Seeing an opportunity, a few students pretended to wander in alone. The Klan members, all grown men, saw the boys as easy targets and chased them down alleys where other Notre Dame students waited. Meanwhile, football players charged into groups of Klansmen, sending them tumbling, making it easier for local citizens to gain the upper hand. Beaten and bloody, the Klan made a hasty retreat to their headquarters. They called Chief Lane, who refused to press charges against the students. Well, unless the Klan wanted charges pressed against them, they did not. Stevenson used the riot to paint Notre Dame's students as violent hoodlums. He claimed that their behavior only proved his point about the Irish and Catholics being menaces that had to be dealt with. In Stevenson's eyes, he could spin this into the best propaganda yet. Still, the Klan licked their wounds. Only one Klansman had walked away unscathed that day, a policeman who had kept one hand on his gun while threatening the students. Though he didn't kill anyone that day, had promised they would get what was coming to them. The students didn't care. They'd just kicked the KKK's butts. They arrived back at campus with souvenirs of torn robes and hoods and ran them up the flagpole for the Klansmen to see. The Klan was furious and embarrassed. They'd been sent packing by a bunch of college kids. For damage control, Stevenson used his connections to portray the students as potato-throwing savages in the newspapers, and that the Klan had been peaceful. Father Walsh was angry. The statements in the article were not only untrue, they were racist and derogatory, but there was little he could do. The Klan had also pulled strings to get 30 deputies to stand guard over their headquarters, where a cross emblazoned with red lights sat in the window. To Father Walsh, the Klan was flaunting their power. And to his students, that red cross was like flashing a red cape in front of an angry bull. It had been a chaotic weekend, and all sophomore Bill Fooey wanted to do was settle into a normal week. It was a Monday, and he sat in his dorm room studying chemistry when the phone rang down the hall. He paid little mind until he heard shouting and doors slamming. Someone knocked on his door and yelled, they've got one of the boys downtown. The messenger didn't say who had been taken, but he had an idea of why. The Ku Klux Klan was out for revenge. Over 500 students ran down to South Bend. The cross with the red light bulbs burned brightly in the window. Deputies stood guard, many of whom the boys recognized as Klansmen. While the boys were armed with nothing more than rotten food, the deputized Klansmen surrounded them and began beating them with clubs. The students fought back. Father Walsh got word about the fight and drove into South Bend. He climbed on top of a cannon that was part of a monument and shouted over the crowd, pleading for peace and for his students to return to school grounds. It wasn't like Father Walsh to plead. Every single student returned to the school. Walsh stayed until everyone, students, Klansmen, and deputies, left. When the street was finally empty, he returned to Notre Dame. The following day, the Klan told the papers that they had come across the students beating on women and children and had simply been defending the innocent. Then they promptly left town, vowing to return in greater numbers to handle the issue. They never returned, though and the students went down in history for taking on the Klan and winning. Winning.
Father Walsh found him standing before the mayor and the chief of police on Tuesday. A few local clan members also showed up. For a while, Walsh sat in silence as the clansmen repeated their lies about his students attacking women and children the previous night. He listened with disinterest when some of the townspeople complained about how rowdy the students had been. When everyone finished speaking, they turned to hear what the father intended to do about his misbehaving students. Walsh said, given their history of boorish behavior in our community, an incident like this was just a matter of time. And then he left. He never punished a single student for standing up to the clan. The school didn't expel or even suspend anyone who had participated in defending the town or themselves against the clan that night. Despite Stevenson's best hopes and efforts, the school did not dissolve or fall into disgrace. Instead, it flourished. The clan and Stevenson didn't fare so well. There wasn't a single report of the injured women or children who the clan insisted had been viciously attacked. Instead, word about the clan getting beaten up and run out of town by college kids spread. Then the second blow hit. Grand Dragon Stevenson was arrested for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of 28-year-old Madge Oberholzer, whom he had met at the governor's inauguration back on January 25th of 1925. He'd hired her to work as his aide, running messages to and from his office, and she'd even helped him write a book. On March 15th of 1925, Stevenson's secretary called Madge and told her she was needed immediately. Eight hours later, her parents reported her missing. Madge showed up two days later, in bad shape, bleeding, badly bruised, and with numerous bite marks on her body. When questioned, she told her parents what had happened at the hands of a man she had trusted. Stevenson had been drunk when she had arrived that day, and he and his men had forced her to the train station and then onto a train heading to Chicago. Then they shoved her into a private compartment, where Stevenson brutally beat, bit, cut, and assaulted her. Though she cried out, none of the men stopped him. And no one helped Madge when she got off the train with Stevenson in Hammond, Indiana. He and the other clan members took her to a hotel. The next day, he had his men take Marge back home, where they dumped her. A boarder at her parents' home found her and summoned help. Madge would die from her injuries. Stevenson didn't bother to run from the police. Actually, he seemed surprised when his political ties and protectors abandoned him. Stevenson was convicted on November 24th of 1925. The Indiana clan fell apart soon after, in 1928. And by 1930, most members found themselves out of work in the midst of the Great Depression. Unable to pay their dues, membership dropped to just 45,000. In 1950, Stevenson was paroled. None of his former connections would have anything to do with him, for fear of the stigma the relationship would bring. He died in 1966, penniless, alone, and forgotten. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. It was the golden age of radio. Across the nation, families sat in their living rooms to listen to a variety of news and entertainment broadcasts. Long before cable TV and the Disney Channel, parents enjoyed a little downtime when the kids sat quietly to listen to their favorite shows. Superman had long been a favorite of children who read comic strips, and they were equally fascinated with the radio show when it first aired in 1940. Kids hurried home from school, did their homework, ate their dinner, and sat wide-eyed while voice actors and audio producers brought the stories to life. In 1946, Stetson Kennedy, an author, journalist, and human rights activist, came up with an idea for the show. Superman versus the KKK. He had despised the group ever since he was a child. As a teen, he had been devastated by the loss of his family's maid, a black woman whom the family loved. Several Klansmen had assaulted and killed her for questioning the change a white bus driver handed her. Klan membership had experienced a resurgence in the 1940s, and they had their sights set on removing anyone who stood in their way. Stetson wanted to do something about them, to bring America's full attention to the terrorist group in their midst. To give the show the best insight, and to best humiliate the Klan, Stetson knew he had to infiltrate the group. He went undercover in Atlanta, visiting bars he thought the Klan frequented. He told everyone he sold encyclopedias. He drank a lot of beer and played even more games of pool. And eventually, he got an invitation to join the Georgia fraternity. After receiving his robes, he attended regular meetings where he learned the Klan's secret passwords. And to his astonishment, they turned out to be nothing more than adding the letters K and L in front of certain words. In their minds, adding the letters would confuse any outsiders from understanding what they were talking about. There was a secret handshake, too, 
a limp-wristed grasp and a wiggle. Members had to pay dues and buy their uniforms exclusively from the clan for $15 each. That's $210 today for pretty much a sheet. All told, the clan was a profitable pyramid scheme based around hatred. Stetson took extensive notes and even risked raiding the Grand Dragon's wastebasket. He learned about the clan's secret rituals and their plans for violence. The IRS slapped the Atlanta chapter with a $685,000 bill when he alerted them about the chapter's tax evasion. Being a mole in the clan was dangerous. They'd kill him if they found him out. And he couldn't trust law enforcement if he wound up in a bind. The local cops were of two minds, those who were afraid and those who were members. Instead, Stetson had to trust the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and hope he wouldn't be outed. Before long, the radio producers had enough material for the 16-part miniseries, The Adventures of Superman, Clan of the Fiery Cross. The show pitted Superman against the Clan and used fiction to reveal the Clan's real rituals, demystifying them. Four and a half million listeners tuned in, including Clan members' children. One member reported he came home from work to find his son with a towel tied around his shoulders like a cape, chasing other kids wearing pillowcases over their heads. The kid told his father he was Superman, ridding the world of the bad men in the KKK. The Klansman worried that his son, who had always looked up to him, might now find his robes and hood. Stetson promptly left the Klan, and didn't out himself until 1951, when he was asked to testify in front of a grand jury. The Klan had bombed religious and community centers in black, Jewish, and Catholic neighborhoods. The Klan tried to silence him with death threats by shooting his dog, and with frequent attempts at setting his home on fire. Like the Man of Steel himself, Stetson didn't back down. The public no longer thought of the Klan as something arcane and enigmatic. They joked about grown men acting like schoolyard bullies with their secret decoder rings. Recruitment dropped. And when the Klan held rallies, people flocked to see them, not to hear what the hate group had to say, though. No, the public came to mock them. Stetson Kennedy died a hero in his own right. He lived a long life, passing away in his home in 2011 at the age of 94. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.